We're in Galatians chapter 3, and we will begin reading in verse 15. Verse 15, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15. When you got it, say so. And the word of the Lord declares, thank you, brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made, he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say to you, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you so very much for your grace that abounds. We thank you so much for your mercy, your kindness. God, we thank you today just for the privilege that we have to seek you, Lord God, the privilege that we have to worship and adore your great and your glorious name. And Holy Spirit, I just ask you that in these next few moments that you would attune our hearts to what you are speaking to your church. God, help us to align ourselves and help us to hear clearly what you are saying, Lord God, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of your word and Lord God, in many cases, doing is simply believing the truth that your word declares, God. Help us to believe and that our belief would turn into action, my Lord. Father, I pray against every hindrance, every distraction, and every obstacle to your word going forth in our hearts. And I pray that you be glorified in us in Jesus' good name. Someone said, Amen. you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Praise the name of Jesus. If you do not have an outline, raise your hand. You want to have an outline so that way you can take notes. Taking notes is a good thing. It's good to be reminded. The, the reason why we have these outlines is because what we do is we go over the preaching of the Word of God on Sunday, and then in our connect groups, which are our small groups, we get together and we discuss the Word of God that is preached, so we dig a little bit deeper into that time. We have a time of fellowship, and so it's important to us that you have the ability to take notes and that you can participate, and if you are not presently in a small group or one of our connect groups, and we encourage you to do so if you call yourself a vision carrier of faith, don't fellowship. We encourage you to do that. Raise your hand if you need an outline. Keep it up. Keep it up. Don't put it down. Keep it up if you need one. Make sure you get it. Glory to God. We want you to be connected. And you can see Pastor Chad after the service and he will help you out to help you to get plugged in to one of those small groups. Is anybody in here encouraged by the small group ministry? Any, anybody encouraged and blessed through Connect? And so it's something that, you know, we should, we should encourage others to participate in. And so this morning we are going to start off with our memory verse. How many of y'all know the memory verse? Oh, uh-huh. Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. For freedom, it's Galatians 5.1. Don't tell me where it is. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of bondage. Amen. Now, some of y'all were saying it with me, so some of y'all got it memorized, and I'm going to applaud you for that. Amen? Come on. Let's say it again. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of bondage. One more time. For freedom, Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of bondage. Amen. Praise the Lord Jesus. Get that memory verse down in your spirit. Amen. So when you start to feel bound, it's Galatians 5.1. Amen. When you start to feel bound, you start to feel a little bit of legalism creeping into your life. You can be like, hold on a second. For freedom, Christ has set me free. Glory to God. Amen. Praise the Lord Jesus. Some of y'all take that to the wrong extreme. But anyway, we'll continue on here. This morning, we're going to continue on in the book of Galatians. And the reason why we are making Galatians 5.1 our memory verse, for those of you that have not been here before or heard this, it is because that is the heart of the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is a reminder to a region of churches, and it's reminding them of the freedom that they have in Christ. And so if you were to pick out one verse that depicts the entire book and the entire exhortation of the heart of what the Apostle Paul is saying, it will be found in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. Now, in your outline, I need you to make a correction because there uh, if you look on the top in the left hand corner you'll see there it's uh, the um you'll see the title and first of all you see what the series is called which is liberated for life that is correct but the title that you have in front of you says something about faith that's not the correct title of this message this message is entitled greater than the law greater than the law so that's the title for this morning's message and we'll be dealing with what the apostle paul um, is communicating and so looking down at your outline you can follow along with me for the first few moments here and then we'll get into our points but the first thing is this is what paul is doing is remember he is he is uh, he is trying to communicate to the church and remind them of their freedom in christ he's trying to remind them of where the gospel comes from and as he is doing that what he does is he is arguing the point and he continues to argue the point that believers are being justified by faith rather than their works and showing the Galatians the preeminence of the promise of God over the law of God, explaining the purpose of the law and expounding the ultimate results of the promise, which is our memory verse. And so, and so here's the thing. Those are the three things we're going to talk about today. The first thing is we'll deal with the preeminence of the promise of God over the law. We're going to look at how the, how, how the law is going to bring us to Christ, and we're going to see that that becomes the ultimate result. And so what Paul does is he continues to argue this point. As, as those who are born again, this is important for me because as we went through the book of Acts and as we go through any book, it's, it's really, really important that we do get and that we do understand that we should never sit idly and what I mean by that is just sit there as though we're just going to hear the word and we're going to go out about our business. We should be sitting there as those who want to do what the word of God is communicating. And as we are learning about our freedom in Christ, as we are learning about how Christ has set us free, it should burn inside of our hearts to bring that same freedom to others who are not free. And it's impossible to do that if you cannot communicate the truths of the gospel. And that's the reason why I try to be faithful every week to communicate what the gospel is. But here's what happens, and this is that in your outline. As those who are born again, we should understand and be able to explain our faith, which is part of evangelism, communicating the gospel. And so one part of evangelism is you living a godly Christian life. Amen? That's one part of your evangelism. Evangelism is, is not just you preaching to people, but part of it is you living. But let me explain this to you. If you never preach to anyone, you are never going to fully evangelize anyone. Hello? Because people may know you're a Christian. That doesn't mean they know that they need Jesus. 
They may know you go to church every Sunday. They, might not, they may not realize, why do I need to go to church? They may just think it's some religious behavior that someone did because a lot of people, and I've found this, that a lot of people that you have conversations with, well, their parents, they were forced to go to church, so now they didn't make their children go to church. They explained to their kids that it was something that they did on Sunday as a family, but they don't realize that this is bigger than just a religious activity, but this is a time for us to come together, worship our Lord and Savior, encourage one another, feast on the Word, of God and go out and live godly Christian lives. It's a time for us to worship God with all of our being together. And listen, we can worship God alone. And if you are not worshiping God alone, there is a problem. Amen? Because then it is just a legalistic activity or a ritualistic activity you do on Sunday. Worship should be with you all week. Glorifying God should be with you all week. The Word of God, you should be in it all week. But we come together for those reasons. And so the point is that if you don't ever share opening your mouth and speaking, you're never going to be able to share the true and full gospel with anyone. But I want you to know something. We are not called to bring people into a place of moral excellence. That's the first thing. I'm not called to bring you to a place of moral excellence. I'm called to bring you to a place of salvation. Amen? And what I mean by that is that we get, you know, I'm, I'll use this word. We get, well, I'm not going to make it up. I will, I'll, I'll use the right word. We get, we get all sanctified, right? And we want everyone around us to be holy. I don't know, is, is the AC all right? Because I have a lot of, like, fanning themselves. I, if we, we drop it down a degree, maybe. Amen? I'm just saying, praise the Lord Jesus. We get all sanctified, right? And what happens is suddenly, anybody around us, they got to be holy too. In other words, if they curse or slip up, we get really offended. Like, yo, don't talk, don't, don't, don't talk like that around me. Like, you are just so holy, like they just got you dirty. Like, oh, 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 my goodness, I can't hear that. Oh, my ears are sanctified. Hold on a second. You know, pe- pe- people start telling jokes around you, right? And, and, and all of a sudden, you know, you get, and listen, hear what I'm going to say. You don't need to tell people, you know, you don't need to be all nasty to folks. You don't need to laugh at nasty jokes, amen? You can walk away from those. I'm not saying not to do that. But my point is, when people who are not Christian around you, they're supposed to act unchristian. They're not supposed to be morally correct. That's what you, let me say it like this. You want them to be immoral around you to some degree because if they're never immoral around you, how are you ever going to bring them to Jesus? How are you ever going to talk about sin because they never sin around you because they don't want to offend you? Hello? They don't want to do unrighteousness. And so the point is that we sometimes think that, you know what, I'm going to be the salt of the earth. And so because I'm the salt of the earth, I'm going to come and I'm going to change the atmosphere. And we should change the atmosphere. There should be great conviction. Let me tell you about a preacher. I think it was Charles Finney. And this was a man of God. This was one of those guys that, and I hope I'm talking about the right person because my history may, 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 may be incorrect on this. But this man of God, this dude, he didn't read newspapers. I mean, he was holy, sanctified, seeking the Lord. And one day he walked into a factory. Let me just tell you about the holiness of God. He walked into this factory, and when he walks into this factory, as he's walking by people, people are feeling the conviction of sin. He hasn't said a word. His life, he is living and walking with Jesus, and he is and he's wanting to live holy. He hasn't said anything, and these people's lives are being convicted of sin. Imagine how much more happens when he opens his mouth. Imagine how much more happens when he begins to speak the truth of the gospel to them. And so here's my point. My point is the presence of God can and should permeate our lives to the degree that wherever we go, the atmosphere is automatically changed because the God of the Bible is walking in there with us. 
That's what should happen because you know what? When God walks into a place, guess what? Things change. Now, that doesn't mean that my religion, hello, my sanctifiedness, that's the word I was going to make up. I'll just use it now. My sanctifiedness needs to try to make people morally correct. No, because you know what? Then we get a bunch of people that have good morals, but they're not Christian. You have a bunch of people that think they're good enough for God because, you know, they're doing okay. And so that should never be our heart. But here's the other thing that shouldn't happen either is that one thing, we shouldn't try to make people morally excellent but, or, or we shouldn't try to bring people into a place of moral abandon, meaning that those things don't matter. Meaning that living like that, see, when I, when, when I give you the example of Charles Finney, there should be a conviction. Because I'm going to tell you what, I, I use my own testimony. When I play racquetball, I play racquetball except when I'm playing with, you know, Sister Michelle and Pastor Robert. They're not unsaved. Amen? <laughs> Glory to God. But the other folks that I play with, you know, and whoever else, John is also saved when I play racquetball with him. He's saved then. I'm just kidding. He's always saved. Um, <laughs> But when I play apart from them, I play with people that are unsaved. And, you know, unsaved people, when they miss a shot and they get upset, they, they let some words slide out their mouth. And I can promise you, I have never once, and this, y'all may judge me for this, but I'm going to just say it. When they curse, I laugh because I think it's hilarious. Like the way that they express, I'm like, oh, my goodness. And I, and I promise you this, they have come to me like, yo, pastor, I'm sorry. And I've never even told them. They ask me like, hey, you know, what do you do? And I tell them whatever. And they get convicted. And it's not me. I'm not like, yo, man, y'all can't be cursing on me because I'm holy. Okay. I don't go in there with a collar saying, yo, this is Bishop Jason. I have arrived to the racquetball court. All right. The point is, okay, so what, what, what should happen is my life should bring the sting of conviction. Right? I shouldn't try to correct them. What I want to do is bring them to Jesus so Jesus can bring deliverance to their lives and their hearts. Amen? Amen. The greatness of God's promises to us, which is what we'll deal with today, should compel us to a greater level of commitment to knowing and living out the truth that is found within the scriptures. And so what should happen is this. We should be motivated because I want to continue to reiterate this. Nowhere is the Bible giving you the license to just, um, you know, antinomianism, which is no law. That's what it is. It is no, nowhere is it giving you the right to just say, you know what? I'm not going to obey the laws of God. I don't have to because Christ set me free, so I'm free. I don't need to worry about obedience. That is not what the scripture is doing here. And so what should happen to us is that when I understand the greatness and the weight of what Jesus has done, and as you'll see when we get to the latter parts of the book of Galatians, he's going to hit them pretty heavy and let them know you cannot live ungodly. Hello? He's not communicating that. But what should happen to us, our motivator should be what? It should be our gratefulness of what God has already done on the cross. That must be our motivation, not a hopefulness in earning God's favor. So you need to understand that the moment that Jesus died on the cross, he said it's finished. The moment that you bowed your knee to Jesus, guess what you had on your life? His favor. He loves you. Did you hear me when I said that? I, I can't give you 10 points to favor because there's one. And some of y'all, that admit, you'll get it out there. I can't, I can't tell you how to live more in the favor of God. All I can tell you is that all of his favor was poured out on you when the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. That's what I'm telling you. When, when, when Pastor Chad was talking about the great exchange, Jesus took our beating so he could give us a blessing. 
That's what he did. He took our sin and he bore it on the cross so that way we never had to worry about it. We would never be overwhelmed by it. And that is what he offers everyone, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've been, no matter how long it's been, no matter how many sins you've committed against him. He wants you to know that joy of what the cross provides for everyone who bows their knee to him. That is the gospel, church, and we need to have that kind of heart where we respond to him in gratefulness and say, God, I want to obey you. I'm not trying to do things so I earn your favor. No, I'm doing things because I already have your favor in my life. And and listen, let me say this because i got to clarify this. Favor doesn't mean every single thing is going to go your way. How many of y'all would say Joseph was a man that had favor? I think he was, right? I mean, homie got a, like, you know, a nice, you know, colorful jacket. I don't know if I would have wore it, but, you know, he did. You know, he, 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 was, he was pimping his thing, right? And he was walking around, and, you know, he had favor, right? God, God, God's given the guy dreams. He had some favor on his life. Did you see the 15-year span that was, like, from the time he had them dreams to the time he came into power? He had favor all that time. He was sold as a slave. Favor, hello? That didn't look like favor to me, but it was favor. He ends up in the, in, in the prison, and guess what? There's God's favor is still on him, and he ends up being elevated to where God wants him to be. My point is, when we think about God's favor, it is this, is that God loves us. It is that he cares for us, is that he is with us, whether we are in the pit, whether we are in Potiphar's house, whether we are in the prison, or whether we are in the palace. That is what it means to have God's favor in our lives. And so we should have that same understanding. And God wants us to embrace his promises for us. So the first point that I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, God's promises are greater than man's promises. God's promises are greater than man's promises. And so in the beginning of this, the verses that we read from verse 15 to verse 18, They communicate to us, and we'll read them together just to reiterate. It says this, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed or ratified, is another translation, no one annuls or adds to it. And so Paul uses this natural example to depict a spiritual reality. And what is that reality? The reality is, is that no one can legally annul, add to, or change a man-made covenant except the parties who made the agreement, obviously, unless someone dies, right? This is what he's doing. He's saying, so if you go and when you write, look, if if you go to purchase a house, you're going to sign this agreement, right? And this agreement is going to state certain things. And no matter what happens... Nobody can come outside of the agreements that are within that, uh, or outside of the parameters that are within that agreement and change them. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying when two people make a covenant, when they make an agreement in this earth, he said no one can change that. And so what he's saying is if this is true in the natural among men, how much truer is this with God? If this is true among men, that you can't change, that you can legally take someone to court if they try to change something that is binding, then that means the same thing here with God. Now you're going to take him to court, but that you can believe him. That you can trust him and know that if he said it, he meant it. That's what he means. He made a promise. He's going to keep it. He's not a man that he should lie to or the son of man that he should repent is what the Bible says. So if God said yes, he meant yes. 
And so what he's communicating is he's letting them know this. Verse 16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And so when God is speaking to Abraham in the book of Genesis, and he's talking about his seed, he is talking specifically, prophetically, looking forward to who? Looking at Jesus. He's talking about where is our blessing, our blessing. So you got to understand why this is so important. It's because the children of Israel, the people who were here, who were arguing these, these Judaizers, what they were doing was they were saying, man, we're the offspring of Abraham. We're his seeds. Are you hearing it? We're his seeds. So they got all these rights because they're his seeds. And what Paul is saying is no. He said to his seed. The blessing is to his seed, and that seed is who? That seed is Jesus Christ, is who he's talking about, is who he was communicating about. And he goes on to say in verse 17, and he says, And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham. And so notice, I want you to think about this for a moment because when God made this covenant with Abraham did Abraham make the covenant with God or did God make the covenant with Abraham in other words here's the question who approached who on this covenant deal if you read the story it wasn't like Abraham was like in a 40-day fast and he was like God I want to make a covenant with you that isn't how it happened God comes to him, and he's in his father's house, and he says, leave there and go. God is approaching him. God is communicating to him. Why is this so important for us? Because Paul is trying to communicate that God loves you, not because of how great you are, not because you're so lovable, not because you've done so many good things, not because you want to pursue him. He loves you because he is God. He's made promises to you because he is God. He's saying, look, because remember, what they're trying to say is that you have to keep the laws that are there. All of these laws that were overwhelming and overbearing, they were trying to communicate to these new believers, listen, you guys need to be circumcised. You guys need to keep all of these laws in order to maintain God's favor in your life. That's what they're communicating, that you have Jesus plus all of these laws. And, 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 and Paul is saying, no, that is not what happened. He goes on and he says this. He says, the promise was made like 430 years earlier. So God makes a promise. 430 years later, the law of God comes into the, at, in, 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 into the equation. And so all of a sudden, they're saying, hey, man, you guys got to keep this. And, and, and what Paul is saying, he's saying no. He said God made a promise prior to the law. He made a promise that was outside of the law. Therefore, it's important for us to look at Abraham. What I want you to know is that Abraham, and you answered this already, Abraham didn't make a covenant with God. God made a covenant with Abraham. That's a beautiful thing. Because that means that it's dependent on God, not Abraham. Hallelujah. Amen. God gave Abraham no conditions. Notice this as well. He gave him no conditions to meet. In other words, he didn't say, you have to do one, two, and three in order for you to get four. He didn't say that. He said, this is what I'm going to do. He, te he tells him, and you, you can go to uh, um, um, Genesis chapter 15. Not right now because you're going to start reading and not pay attention to me. But you can read it afterward to test and see what I'm saying is right. But what happens is he makes it real clear. He's like, yo, man. He says, look up at the sky and see if you can number all of those stars. He said, that's what, you're, you, that, that's what your children are going to be like. I mean, he's, he didn't tell them, you got to go do this, this, and this. That wasn't how it happened. He said, this is my promise to you. He communicates these things to him. So number one, he doesn't, God, God makes the covenant. Uh, God gives him no condition to ensure the promise will be fulfilled. But this is the one that really gets me. Abraham was asleep when the covenant was made. Y'all don't hear me. He was asleep 
when the covenant was made. The Bible says that this darkness came upon him, and that's when God makes the covenant. So homeboy goes and he gets all of these, you know, sacrifices, lays them out, runs the birds off, sun is going down, Abraham goes and takes a nap, and then God says, okay, now that you have nothing to do with anything here, I'm going to make the covenant with you. Amen. I, I don't know. That, that excites me. I, to me, it's like, man, I can trust him, right? He, he's he's going to do what he said he's going to do. He's going to bring to pass his purposes and his plans. And so what did Abraham do? He did one thing. He believed God. That's all he did. He believed what God said. And that was enough for God to do everything that God said he was going to do. You see, the beauty of belief is this, is that when you really believe, belief causes you to act. Hello. The book of James is going to tell you, faith without works is dead. So it's not like Abraham just said, oh, I believe, and he sat back. No, 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 no. Abraham continued to pursue God, continued to, to the point that, I mean, he made some bad decisions because right after chapter 15, we go to chapter 16, and he makes a mistake, and he sleeps with Hagar and all of that stuff and has a child that was a wrong child. Hello. I'm just saying, he shouldn't try to help God, but he believed God so much, he's like, I'm going to help you, Lord. I'm just saying, so that, that, that's how some of us are. I'm going to help you, God. I'm going to assist you in this process. No, you need to wait on the promise to come to pass. Amen? I'm just saying. So what we see here is that Jesus is what? Jesus is the promised seed who guarantees our, internal, our, our eternal inheritance. Here's the thing for us. Our greatest battle will be to live by faith in Christ alone until the day that we meet him face to face. The hardest thing for us is going to really be able to trust Jesus and him alone, not trust my works, not trust my abilities. And it's going to be hard for me to fail and really believe that he still loves me despite my failure. It's hard to believe that. And listen, I'm not giving you a license to continue to fail God and dishonor God. That's not what I'm saying. But, it's, but what happens to us is we get caught up either in the place of our failures or in the place of our successes. We get caught up and we begin to think, oh, well, you know what, and we're going to see this really clearly in a moment. But we get caught up in those things. And so our greatest battle is going to be for us to be constantly reminded that anything that I have, it's because of his grace. That anything that I have is because of his mercy. That anything that I have is because of who he is. And when I fall short of his glory, his grace is still enough. That's a hard place for us to be at because we're so much into performance. Now let's look at verse 19 to verse 24. Verse 19 to 24 says, what purpose then does the law serve? This is an important question because when you think about everything that Paul has been doing, he has been talking about how unimportant the law is. That, that's what he's been doing. He's been talking, or, or, or it seemed like, he's been talking about how the law is unnecessary for anything that Jesus was going to do. That, that, that's what it sounds like. And so this is a rhetorical question, obviously, and he is saying it so that way they will think, okay, well, well I, he's saying, basically what he's saying is, I know what you're thinking. So your next question is, you're going to try to trip me up on this, and I'm not there, I'm writing this letter. It is, so what is the point, or what purpose then does the law serve? And it goes on to say, it says, it was added because of transgression, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. In other words, God doesn't need a mediator. God is the one who did all of this transaction with the promise by himself. And when you look at the whole other part in verse, in, in verse 19, where the law was mediated by angels, what was happening was, um, you know, when, when, when Moses was getting revelation from God, he was, he was hearing, he was getting these things. There was mediation that was happening, but when God made this covenant between him and Abraham, it was just him and God, no mediator there. 
He says this in verse 21. He says, is the law then against the promises of God? Look at this. Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. And so he says, listen, there, it's not against the law. But what happened is, if there was a law that could make you righteous, if there was a law that could make you holy, that would have been where the righteousness would have came from. But there was no law that could do that. And verse 22 says, but the scripture has confined all under sin. Say all. all. Everyone is under sin because of what scripture is he talking about? He's talking about the law. The law condemns every one of us as sinners. That's what it says. That's what it declares to us. It says, so all of us under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He says, but before faith came. We were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Say this with me. The purposes of the law. I'm sorry. The purpose of the law is to bring us to the promise. The purpose of the law is to bring us to the promise. The reason for the law was not so that way we would feel condemned. It wasn't so that way we would just feel bad about ourselves. But what Paul does is he qualifies the purpose of the law as part of the whole scheme of God's plan of what? Redemption. But the law wasn't primary. The promise was. The promise was made first, and then what God does is after 430 years, he communicates his law. And what happens every single year as, uh, for those people that were under the law? They have this day called the Day of Atonement. And on this Day of Atonement, first of all, they make sacrifices every day for sins and different things that they're doing wrong. But then there is this one time a year, this annual feast, this Day of Atonement, where they come and they are mourning and they are recognizing that they are sinners before a holy God. And you know what they're constantly reminded of? They're constantly reminded of how far they fall short of the glory of God. And here's what happens for us. What happens for us is that when the law of God is used correctly, you know what it does? It brings condemnation to our hearts. Hear what I just said. When the law of God is used correctly, it brings condemnation to our hearts. It condemns us. It judges us as guilty. It judges us as sinners. Why? Because the gospel, God is a holy God. He is a just God. And we are sinners who have sinned against him by commission and omission. We are sinners by birth and by decision. And so what happens is when I look at the laws of God and the Bible tells me not to do this, I can guarantee you I've done that. When the Bible says to do this, then I guarantee you half the time I don't do that. And so the Bible, when, when, when I look at the law, it condemns our heart. But then the beauty of the promise. Because the promise is that while we are condemned to be separated from God in our sins, Jesus dies in our place. Jesus comes to this earth to absolve us of all of our sins. Glory to God. He comes to this earth to die in our place because we are unrighteous. We are unholy. We are separated from God and we will never accomplish the purposes that God has for us being righteous apart from a perfect sacrifice. That perfect sacrifice is Jesus. And then Jesus enacts because he is the seed that was waiting. And so this law does a few things here. The first thing is the purpose of the law was one. And if you're writing notes, you should write this down. The first one was to make clear what sin is by clarifying God's standards. 
What the law does is it makes clear what sin is and what sin is not. It makes it clear. Lying is a sin. Why? The Bible says it is. Coveting is a sin. Why? The Bible says it is. Lusting is a sin because the Bible says that it is. Period. Being greedy is a sin because the scriptures say that it is, right? That, that's part of the whole coveting thing. Committing adultery, those things are sins because of what? Not because I feel bad about it. Not because someone said it's right or wrong in our culture. No, sin is sin because God declares what sin is. That is what the law does. The law clearly states for everyone, say everyone. The Bible doesn't have like some, some people, this is a sin for some people. Like lying is okay for some people. Like if you have a job that you have to lie at, it's okay. That's not okay. That, that's not all right. You should not lie, period. You should pray to God for a new job and, do, and, and don't lie in your present job and ask God for his grace. Amen? When I was in youth ministry, my wife, she was a technical recruiter. And when she, when, when she recruited, one of the things that, you know, she talked you know, talk to me about is the way that people are in the recruiting. You know, they're not called headhunters for no reason. Hello. I'm just saying that that's like the nickname, right? They're, they're called headhunters. Why? Because they're just trying to come and get you. They just want to get you to move from one job to another. They will lie to you. They will tell you stuff that's not true. And you'll be in a contract and be stuck over there because you listen to someone who was deceitful. And one of the things that my wife would not do is she would not get into that lying, cheating, and deceiving stuff. And can I tell you something for the glory of God? My wife was one of the top recruiters in that place when she was there. And so what I'm saying is, it is possible for you to obey the commands of God and still be successful while you're surrounded with people who are not obeying the commands of God. We can trust him because his favor is on our lives. So the first thing it does is it makes clear what sin is by clarifying what God's standards are. The second thing that the law does is it helps us to see how impossible it is to obey all of God's standards what it says. It says here, now, now we, we, we will read these scriptures together. The first one, you could see that in verse 19. The second one, let's read from verse 21 to verse 23. He said, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scriptures, the law, has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept, by, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. And so it helps us to see when we look at the laws of God, they are condemning and they are overwhelming. That's why Jesus said, and, I, and, I, and I've shared this before, when Jesus says, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, come unto me and find rest, right? What, is he ta- what burden is he talking about? Because for us, we just supply like, yo, man, I'm tired. Yo, my week has been long. I need to come unto Jesus and find rest. That's a great misapplication of that scripture. That's not what Jesus, oh, well, Bishop, what are you saying? Jesus won't give me rest? No, we could apply some other scriptures to that. But if we take the scripture in its context, what Jesus is communicating, the yoke that he's saying, take up my yoke because it is light. The yoke he's talking about. What do we say in our memory verse? Do not submit again to a yoke of bondage. Why? Because the yoke was synonymous with the law. 
And so what happened was Jesus is communicating to a religious community of people who are overwhelmed by this Pharisaic mentality, who are overwhelmed by all of these laws that are impossible to keep, who are overwhelmed trying to please God with everything that is in them, that is weighty, that is heavy, that is overwhelming, that is condemning. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, stop trying to do it on your own strength. Come unto me and find rest. Come unto me and find rest. Learn from me. Take up my yoke because it's light. Why is his yoke light? Because he bears the burden for us. He bears the burden. He fulfills all of the law. He fulfills all of the requirements. He dies on the cross. And the scripture says that he nails that writing of requirement against us to the cross. Glory to God. So it says there that everything that the law condemns me of has been nailed to the cross. I don't look to Jason's righteousness. I look to the righteousness of Jesus because that's the only one that will never, ever fail. The third thing that the law does is it, it was to keep us from self-reliance for salvation, clearing the way for Jesus. See, when I correctly look at the law of God, you know what I understand if I'm really honest with myself? I really understand that I can't save myself. I really understand that I am not righteous enough. I really understand that I can never do enough good to outdo all the bad that I did. I really understand that even if I can do a whole bunch of good, it's still not good enough because the Bible says what? That my righteousness is as filthy rags before him. And so I come to that place and I realize this. And so what is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to bring us to Jesus. See, here's the thing, church. The law never brought salvation. It only brought instruction and conviction when it was disobeyed. Yet the law was a tutor, is what the scripture says. In some other, in some other translation, it might be a schoolmaster. Different words are utilized there. But basically what this person was, this person was a slave who was paid to make sure that the child got to where they needed to get to. So the child got to school. The tutor made sure you know, that the child got to school, that the child got home, that the child was taken care of. And so what the law was is the law was a tutor to do what? To bring us to Jesus. See, listen, I've said this before. The incorrect application of the law is to just condemn people. The correct application of the law is to utilize it in a manner that brings liberty to the ones who recognize that they violate it. The correct application is to bring liberty to those, and the only way you do this is through the power of the cross. It is to bring liberty to those. See, because once I recognize that I have violated the laws of God, when I would listen, before I became a Christian, I want you to understand, I knew I was going to hell, no questions asked. There was no question. I knew I was a sinner. I knew that I had violated God's commands. I knew that I was not cool with God. Hello. And the reason why I told you about my grandmother, I wish she was here. But, you know, the reason why was because she was telling us from a young age, when we were sinning, you're going to hell. Hello. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm just saying what they did for us. It worked for me. Glory to God. At some point, I came around and said, man, I don't want to go to hell. Hello. I'm just saying, right? And so, you know, and, and, and so the thing is, the reason why I was going to hell, it wasn't because I was, you know, whatever. It was because of my sins that I was committing. It wasn't like my grandma just walked up to me and said, oh, Jason, you know you're going to hell. It wasn't like that. 
When I, when I did something wrong, like told a lie, like did something dishonest, when I did those things, that's when those things were communicated. So the correlation was what? It was that when I did wrong, that was something that was, had consequences to it. And when I utilized the law the way the Bible instructs us to utilize the law, then what I do is I bring people face to face with the reality that they are not good, that God is the only one that is good. And if they recognize that, then I present to them the glorious beauty of the cross that will save them and set them free. Amen? The third thing, we'll read from verse 25 here, and we're going to go into um, chapter 4. It says, but after faith has come, there is no longer, you, we are no longer under a tutor. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That no longer do we need a tutor to come to Christ because what? Because we've come to him. And if you've already come to Jesus, you can rejoice in that. Amen? If you haven't come to Jesus, you can come to him today. You can bow your heart to him today. You can submit your life to him today. You can repent of your sin today. You can put your faith in him. You don't have to wait for tomorrow. You can do this today. Because obviously if you don't know him, guess what? The tutor has you here today. I'm just saying, if you don't know Jesus, the law has you here today because God wants to save you. He wants to deliver you from an eternity that is separated from him. He wants to set you free. That way you can know joy and you can know peace now and you can be secure that he has you in his hands. Verse, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So notice, he flips it around. He doesn't say you're Abraham's seed and now you get salvation. No, he says that if you belong to Christ... Then you get the application of Abraham's seed. And now you have this, this, this heritage according to the promise that was made to Abraham. He goes on and he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so we... When we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through, through, through Christ. Say this with me. The promise of redemption and adoption are received by faith in Jesus. The promise of redemption and adoption are received by faith in Jesus. You know, when we look at this here, we find here, he says in verse 26, he says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And so what, what, what he's dealing with is he is letting us know that as sons, we are those who are going to inherit. He's not trying to make this, this, this distinction at this moment, and there's a reason for that. And what he's doing is Paul is responding here. I was, I was sharing in, our, in my Wednesday night class um, in the mentoring program 
we were going over this particular verse in, in the book of Galatians chapter 28 where he says here, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now remember, Paul, he was what? This guy was like a rabbi, right? I mean, he was, he was a deep Pharisee. He knew the prayers of these Pharisees prayed. And so what happens is he's addressing a prayer that they used to pray every day. Y'all remember the story when Jesus, he's showing the guys, the two guys on the altar. Remember one of them is praying. He's saying, God, I thank you that I'm not a sinner like this man. Okay. Well, they used to say other prayers that were similar to that. And so one of the prayers was, they would say, God, I thank you that I am a Jew, not a Greek. God, I thank you that I am free and not a slave. God, I thank you that I'm a man and not a woman. That sounds like really like prehistoric, right? But see, what happened was the mindset, and this is what happens to us when we get all legalistic and we start counting on our own righteousness. We start looking at ourselves like, man, I'm making all this money. I'm doing all of this stuff. Everything is so good. I must be blessed. Everybody else has issues. Uh uh It's not like that. You look, at, you look at all of the, you know, women, women are less than for whatever the reason is in that time. You know, they got to go through birth pain. They have, I mean, if you, if you read the Old Testament law, I mean, it's tough to be a woman. I'm just saying. I'm just saying, there's a lot of laws for the women. I mean, there's laws for men as well. There's a lot of laws for women. I'm just being honest. And so there's tough stuff. I mean, there's just certain things that you can't control. Hello? It just happens once a month. I'm just saying just, you know, for brevity's sake. But you're unclean because of that, and so you can't come to the temple for a certain amount of time. And so that's why they were saying, I thank you that I'm a man, not a woman. Right? This is what they're communicating. And what Paul says, he says, hold on a second. He says, in Christ, he said, there is no slave nor free. There is no male nor female. There is no Jew nor Greek. We are all one in him. He's saying the promise makes the playing field level. Hello? The promise makes everyone equal in him. It doesn't mean that you stop being a slave if you're a slave. Hello? It doesn't mean you stop being a woman if you're a woman. It doesn't mean you stop being a Greek if you're a Greek. What it means is that God is not looking at us based on those things. He is looking at us based on the cross. He is looking at us based on what Jesus has done. And when he sees us all, he he deals with our inequalities. Amen? He deals with those things that are, that, that are there, but he doesn't change who we are. He lets us know that we're loved just like we are. Amen? Amen? Our identity, our new identity in Christ is rooted in him and his finished work of redemption. That's what he's communicating here. And by faith, we are sons, meaning that we are heirs and that we have put on Christ. What does that mean that we have put on Christ? It means that we take on a new identity, a righteousness that is not our own. Amen? We're no longer depending on our own works, our own abilities. We're not depending on what family we were born into. We're depending on the work of Jesus. And that church is what Christians are supposed to be doing. No longer are we in bondage to the elementary principles of weak religious efforts seeking justification before God. But we have not only, or should I say, we have not only been forgiven, but we have also been adopted. See, that's a powerful word. That, 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 that is a beautiful thing when we think about this picture that he's giving. Why? Because everyone, listen to me now. You may know Jesus today, and you may be part of his family, but everyone that is sitting in this room, you were born outside the family of God. Every one of us had a father, and that was the devil. Hello? 
Every one of us is a sinner by nature. Therefore, when we are born, we are born outside of the family of God. And the only way that we can become part of God's family is by what? It's through the act of adoption. That's it. It's through the act of adoption. And, you know, I, I use the analogy, and, you know, adoption is special to me. You know, my son, amazing. God blessed us. But here's the thing that I want you to know what happens. When, when someone is adopted, right, He's, th- this is a legal transaction that occurs. And what happens is, like, for my son right now, if, if I go and get his birth certificate, you know who his dad is? Jason Quinones. You know who his mom is? Elaine Quinones. And that's how it will be. He's... he's he, I love that boy. He, 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 is, he, he, is, he is a quinones because of what? Because that is what happens when you adopt. That means that everything that is mine, guess who it belongs to? Him. The good and the bad. Hello. Right? Except he didn't inherit, he didn't inherit physical things, but, you know, all, all this other stuff, it's his. And so what happens is this is what occurs. So he gets, when a person is adopted into a family, they get a new name. Hello? They get a new identity. They become part of a new family. And it will seem, I can promise you, my son, unless, because we're going to tell him, obviously, that's the only reason that he will know. But he's not going to be treated, you know, like we, you know, like we, we say stuff, like a redheaded stepchild. He's not going to be treated like someone less than. He is what? He is the family. He is part of the family. He has always been in our minds and our hearts. And more than that, in the mind and the heart of God, he's always been. Now, that's a beautiful thing. And this is what happens in adoption that is so awesome. Adoption doesn't occur because you're so great adoption occurs because you were chosen that's beautiful right but let me tell you something that's so much more awesome than even my son's story it is that my son was not born he didn't have anything he didn't we didn't know anything about him other than his birth mom when he was when he was brought into our family but you know what God does when he adopts us he adopts a brat he adopts someone who hates him He adopts someone who sins against him. He adopts someone who is kicking him in his shins. He adopts someone who is biting him every opportunity he gets. He adopts someone who is cursing him to his face. He adopts someone who hates him in every sense of the word. He adopts us. He calls us out of that hatred for him into a love relationship with him. He calls us out of that while we are totally alienated from him because of our sin. He loves us enough that he sends his son to die and he pursues us with this magnificent, glorious, overwhelming love. That way he can call us sons and he can call us daughters and he can say, I don't count your sins against you any longer. I don't see you as that person that hated me anymore. I see you as a son. I see you as a daughter. That is what adoption does. It makes me legally his. It makes me his. And now it's not because of how good I was. It's despite my goodness, despite my wrong being, despite my hate for him. So my closing question for you is this. Have you learned to rejoice in your inheritance? Have you learned to rejoice in your inheritance? What is your inheritance? You have a new identity in Jesus. Our inheritance is our justification in Christ. Are you so overwhelmed by the sin in your life, the failures in your life? Are you so overwhelmed by those things that you can't even sing when we sing? You can't even get excited when we get excited because you think that God is mad and he, and he, he hates you. No, he loves you. Or are you so overwhelmed by your own goodness It happens that you don't even need to really rejoice. You're rejoicing more in your goodness than you are his. God calls us all to repentance, all of us to repentance. 
Stand to your feet, please, and bow your heads. I want us to worship. I want to open this altar up for anyone who needs prayer in this place. Open up this altar for anyone. If you're not sure of your standing with Jesus today, you can be sure. You can turn from your sin and you can turn to your Savior today. Maybe you're in this place and you're a Christian and you just need encouragement. You need to be prayed for. You want someone to stand with you. Maybe you need to repent of your pride. Maybe you need to repent of your own self-righteousness and dependence upon yourself. However God was speaking today, I encourage you to respond to him in faith. And so I open the altar up here for anyone who needs prayer, for anyone who wants to come forward, and we'll, the leaders here will pray with you. As we sing songs of worship, I'm going to say this prayer, and then we'll worship the Lord. Father, we just humble ourselves in your presence today. And God, we acknowledge our desperate.